Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to all things cycling, walking and wheeling in the UK and beyond. I'm Ned Bolting. I'm Adam Tranter. And I'm Laura Laker. And welcome to the second of a two-part mini-series on online disinformation. As it emerges, ministers are making decisions based on, quote, online discussions that veer towards fringe conspiracy theories around things like 15-minute cities Our next guest has some timely insight into the world of disinformation. Shioni Lin, founder of Lin Group, a communications consultancy powered by behavioural science. You specialise in helping organisations avoid their work being the subject of disinformation, including those involved in the vaccine rollout and mental health services. Um, Tell us about what you do. Thank you so much for having me, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yes, I run a business called Lynn Group, and we work towards a very singular mission, which is to improve and save lives. We work through the lens of applied behavioral science, so how we can get individuals and communities to adopt positive behaviors that support them and their families and their networks, whilst also helping our clients in both the public and private sectors to protect their audiences from the emerging and rapidly growing threats of mis- and disinformation. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is a second part of, of two podcasts that we're doing on this topic because it is, it is a very live issue at the moment and it, around active travel, which is of course our in, area of interest on the can, podcast. Yeah. Can I just come straight in with a question because you've just um You've just used two words that um, in, the, in the last episode, our guest also used as well and differentiated. And it might be worth, if, you know, reminding our podcast listeners what the important, if subtle, differences between disinformation and misinformation. I think that's a great it. question. So disinformation is the proliferation of false information with intent. Misinformation is the proliferation of false information without intent. So if you think about it, for misinformation to exist, disinformation has to have a place first. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And presumably those lines are occasionally blurred. Um, Absolutely. And and that's why, you know, I mean, 
I think one of the reasons they're blurred is because whilst this has always been the case, right? So false information has, you can track that back through, you know, the history of mankind. And just like, just like you can with persuasion, um, false information has always surrounded us. And I think what social media, certainly through the pandemic we saw, was the rapid rise of organized false information, and that's disinformation. And what that means is we now operate in a society which is being powered by social media and alternative news and facts, where there are actors working to create chaos, To and their agenda is very specifically to disrupt Western democratic processes and values. And these actors are very sophisticated. They are very organized. They are they have a good understanding, a really solid understanding actually of human behavior. And what they're doing is creating very engaging, persuasive content with false information with this agenda in mind that the, the byproduct of that is individuals and communities subtly but rapidly getting radicalized as we progress. And I think from a from the lens of PR and communications, we need to acknowledge this as a huge risk to organizations, to the purpose and mission of organizations, to the reputation of organizations, and fundamentally how organizations interact in in society. And we need to take this risk and threat seriously and proactively and think of how we can mitigate it. Because as communicators, I firmly believe that we have an obligation to protect our audiences. And we need to think about how our own communications can be made more resilient so we can protect our audiences from the proliferation of false information. Yeah, it seems to be the case that what well, I've heard people say that the a lie gets around the internet before the truth has got its shoes on. And I I wonder if it's if it kind of boils down to education, education in terms of helping people understand to sift through what is correct and what isn't correct or or if you have a I think idea. Um, education is certainly a way of looking at it. And if you think about um, why these falsehoods proliferate, why they are then perpetuated by, you know, your your uncles, your aunts, your friends, your colleagues, um, you know, educated individuals who perhaps may not have believed the nature of false beliefs that we currently have in our ecosystem, it's because they've really engage us as human beings. They're created to basically resonate with our own biases, to resonate with our identities, and they are done with extreme sophistication. So they confirm a lot of biases and beliefs and they conform to our identities. And so it's easy for us to engage with content in that manner because it gives us control, it gives us a network, it gives us a community. And it's online, it's anonymized, you know, it's easy to engage in content proliferation from that perspective. So education is certainly an important aspect of mitigating the impact of mis- and disinformation. But education on its own is not necessarily the only intervention solution. Because if you, we de- we're dealing with quite deep-seated identity and belief systems. And so we really need to understand audiences, not as a homogenous entity, but in quite granular detail to understand what is it that really makes individuals or communities gravitate towards certain false narratives and then proliferate it. And and they may not necessarily believe in the whole truth. Maybe it's parts of it that, you know, engage and is persuasive to them. And unless we really understand that, we won't be able to craft 
counter narratives that can respond to them on that same emotional and psychological level. So obviously we've been talking about uh, there's low traffic neighbourhoods, 15 minutes, this is that kind of thing. And I, we're, I'm sure going to get into that. Um, I'm just interested more broadly, what kind of other stuff does this disinformation and the kind of work you do fall into other categories, uh, other work you've done, just so people can get a gauge of other genres of, of their life that this is happening in? So disinformation is across most areas of our lives. If you think about the very top of that funnel and where a lot of these falsehoods are being created and orchestrated with precision and agenda, they all interweave into that wider need to disrupt what we have as as sort of our norms in the Western society, the values that we have, the the way we engage in society. It's it's created to disrupt that. And and there are lots of different actors who are participating in that. Obviously we find a lot of disinformation in also the health space. We know the health and climate space really inter intersect. So we do we do see a lot of falsehoods in the health space that make its way into the climate space. So if you think about even when we're talking about, you know, ULEDs and 20 miles per hour, yes, they're transport policies, but they are policies that have been created to also reduce health inequalities and pressures on the health system. So that does go across. And then you will see it across other areas. You'd see it in the financial industry. You'd see it in consumer. You know, you'd see it in various industries in, in either, you know, high intensity or low intensity. But as I always keep saying, disinformation is here to stay. And with the growth of AI, the speed that we're seeing AI grow, this is only going to get worse. So it's not an if disinformation hits, it's a when disinformation hits. So we need to be prepared and be resilient to be able to deal with the fallout of disinformation before it becomes a crisis. I'm, I'm very struck by, straight from the off, you have framed this whole discussion in terms of basically an attack on the West is that what it is? Is that how you see it? It's an attack on Western democratic values, I believe. So I don't think it's necessarily an attack on the West. I think it's an attack on how we have created a society where democracy and, and the way we interact as individuals in the Western democratic world. Does that mean there is no disinformation in other parts of the world? Of course there is. But here we are sat in the UK and we're looking at sort of the key enablers of this particular strategy. And it is, you know, certain state state actors are there to disrupt how the world is currently existing, how policies are being created, how networks exist from a from a more political perspective. So that's certainly one of the key areas. But it's 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 not an attack. I mean, it is an attack. I mean, we can't beat about the bush. That is an attack. But the attack is it's it's to it's disruption, I think, is the key takeaway. It's it's to try and take away all of that sort of the unity, the the way we think as society, the way we've come together as countries and democratic entities. The if you look at, for example, the pandemic accord, which is being led by the WHO through its members, it's looking at how do we avoid a COVID nineteen type scenario again. And there's a huge attack from disinformation actors into that because you know by going to that court, there might be processes and systems that are not in their best interests. And you mentioned state actors. So this is not sort of rogue groups. I mean, I guess I guess whoever's doing it's got something to gain from it. It's an organised industry. Of course, there would be state actors involved. 
but it, that doesn't mean that it's just state actors. It's a, obviously a consortium of individuals and and groups and communities. It is, you know, money is changing hands, so it, people can make money in this in this industry, and you know, there will be actors who are non-state who are there to financially gain from this. I was going to, yeah, I was going to just kind of try and articulate that at the moment, very much at the moment, we were just talking about this, you know, with the Conservative Party conference uh, and also, you know, there'll be other political conferences where it feels to me now that there are sort of two types of this kind of disinformation. And I don't know whether there are scales of seriousness and whether you can even categorise it in a such a way, but I guess there are state actors and bad actors, we would normally say, who are outright trying to spread disinformation so that people think something that's not true is true. But we're starting to see, and I, I say starting to see really naively, I think this has been a feature of politics for, for quite a while, but I noticed in, in the Transport Secretary Mark Harper's speech, he said, he was talking about a crackdown on overzealous enforcement of drivers. And one of the things he said is that there's been around 7 million penalty charge notices in London and he said that just under half of these penalty charge notices were successfully appealed, which, you know, highlights that these are wrong, these are overzealous, you know, etc. Looking into it, what it actually means is that 42% of the penalty charge notices which were challenged were successful. So the overall portion is 0.5% rather than 42%. Wow. So I'm just wondering if you think there are various different categories of this and whether the tactics might share some of the similarities, but whether you can, you know, justify some of it as political discourse and some of it as downright misleading stuff. I think it's really sad that we are seeing a period in our time that where society is being purposefully polarised to suit political agenda. And we're not just seeing this in the UK, we're seeing it across the world. Um, and to your point, I don't think this is a new thing. It's always been there, but it's the scale of it and the frequency of it you know, against the backdrop of a consistent growth of disinformation anyway, as I've talked about AI and how that affects disinformation, but it's not something that's alien to politics. I just think that the scale is increasing and it's really sad to see that. It's sad to see good policy being misinterpreted, whether that's intentionally or unintentionally to suit political agenda and the knock-on impact to not just society, but to our world. You know, we live in the decisive decade right now. Every decision we take to do with the climate right now is so fundamentally important, whether this planet survives or not. And I think it's really sad to see short-term political gains outweigh the longer-term need for this planet to exist. Does um, does disinformation work? Can it work if there isn't deep down at the origins of that disinformation a kernel of truth? Um, that's a very good question. And, you know, I'm sure there's kernels of truth uh, where where you look at sort of that kernel of truth as malinformation where you might take something out of context and, and put a different perspective on it. So malinformation alongside misdisinformation and also conspiracy thinking are key areas to be mindful of. Disinformation does work because I think, you know, it speaks to us on a very intuitive level and connects with, as human beings, through the lens of beliefs, biases, identity and they're very deep-seated and you know it's not necessarily where as human beings we're particularly conscious of it's not where we necessarily think through quite deeply about whether something is legitimate or not whether you know it's whether the source material is there we probably will say well actually you know when we're online and we 
find some piece of content which resonates with our beliefs. And we might question, well, maybe, you know, I haven't really source checked this, but it may not stop us from sharing it. Mm. And I think that's the kind of society we live in, which is quite instant, right? So everything we do um, on the scale that we do now with social media is quite instant. So we're not necessarily sitting down and making a pros and cons list and doing our research and due diligence. Mm. Where we do that is often mm. to confirm our biases and beliefs. So we saw a lot of that sort of mm. self-funded research, shall I call it, during the pandemic, where people who are very anti-vaccine were, were doing their own research. But then how biased is that research and how authentic is that research? And, you know, what kind of is there selection bias? Is there is it representative? You know, all of that stuff are not questions we will ask. You know, we, we've done a Google search. We've seen some pieces of content that align with our narrative. And there we go. Um, so disinformation is created to engage with us on, and I don't like using this particular word, but it's true. It's it's meant to engage with us in our irrational self, not our rational self. It's meant to engage in a very subconscious, unconscious level where we connect with words, content, creatives, phrases, language, because it, it takes certain things in our in our brain and through our sort of memories and history. And it's quite often... I don't know, I'm kind of thinking of the term common sense as a, there's a sort of, it's passed off as common sense, certain ideas, like what we see is what we should believe and and the, the difference between, I guess, fact and what we observe, which are very different things. Yeah, and, and that's why I don't think fact checking is always the right solution. You know, you can put a lot of fact in front of people, but if it, and, and we just, so you see this in the 20 miles per hour, you're, you're seeing this and you realize the facts are there and ministers are constantly pointing to the facts. But if you have, beliefs that are anti that policy because of whatever reason those facts don't matter and we will make excuses to discount those facts or discount the scale of those facts so fact checking is not necessarily the only approach it can be part of a mix Um, you know there's been some research which demonstrates that pre-bunking might be a really good way of looking at it so how do we how do we make our audiences more resilient before mis and disinformation hits and that's the approach that we have at Lynn. And it's a, that's pre-bunking is um, a kind of inoculation, like you would Correct. give someone for a, a vaccine, say. So you prepare them with the facts. And so when the disinformation comes along, they can con- compare it against a sort of baseline, if you like, mm. and then say, oh, this isn't what I've read and all of this. But then I guess once you get into those, um, into this kind of more entrenched thinking, then you might start experiencing confirmation bias and then it's everything you see, whether it's for or against your theory, tends to confirm what you believe anyway. If it doesn't confirm it, you think, oh, it must be false. And then if it does, you put it in the true pile. Yeah. And then that, and that's the point at which it becomes really difficult to kind of get people out of this. That's when you start getting into conspiracy theory territory, which is quite hard to undo, I think. And it becomes very much us versus them, right? And, you know, the individuals become communities, communities that get bigger, and then you have, you know, strength in belief because it's often seen as sort of the authoritarian voices, and I say that within quotes, you know, government or institutions telling individuals what to believe and, you know, what not to believe. And I think coming out of the pandemic where we lost so much of our agency as human beings, you know, we, for such a long period of time, had to listen to mandates, which we're not used to and accustomed to, leaves a lot of psychological trauma. And so coming out of that, we really want to reclaim that agency as quickly as possible. So control is a really important thing. Mm. I th- what I think is really interesting is how, how once you are confronted with something that you are pretty sure is disinformation or you understand to be disinformation, 
how you then interact with it and, and those people who are sort of trumpeting it. Because there is this phenomenon, isn't there? There's that, there's that um, phrase, when did you stop beating your wife, right? Which is a really strange phrase. I remember Gary Imlach on our Tour de France coverage Never one, heard once that. used it about Chris Froome and we all went, what are you talking about? Anyway, it's basically, if I say to you, Adam, when did you stop beating your wife? Yeah, you might be t- quite taken aback by that. Yeah. And you would say, well, listen, I've never beaten my wife. But by responding to my my disinformation, to the fact that you have brought you've brought my argument, and you you've been I've forced into your argument, you have basically. been forced into a denial of something. Well, that, that is, is what's happening right now, isn't it? And I'm going to put my politics on the thing, but again, the, the, me, the, meat, tax, the meat thing, the, meat the whole tax. thing of like we will ban, we will ban the banning of meat and the seven bins, and the which seven, didn't the seven exist. bins. Yeah. And this is you know this is. The, so how do you deal with that? Do you then you deny that, yeah. something that was never there in the first place? And by, by doing that, you get a rise out of somebody, and then they say, no, 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 they've we kind don't of done want their seven job, bins. haven't they? So Shani's written a blog about this. Right, Luckily, okay. <laughs> thankfully, you've got someone who understands. I've done some research think, on I this. Think, I think it's important <laughs> to keep in mind that not all falsehoods are the same, and not all information is created equal, right? So governments and organisations if that's what we're talking about, should should have a structured way to think about how to respond to these different types of falsehoods. So one helpful way um, to do this is, and it's, it's a great piece of work, is by the Government Communication Service, uh, team led by, particularly in the, in the behavioral sciences, because a lot of the misinformation research coming out is through the lens of behavioral science and human behavior, which is, of course, what it deals with is GCS's Wall of Beliefs framework. And uh, it's a framework that we use consistently here at Lynn. And what it does, it helps us understand how to respond to particular beliefs by the extent to which that belief is embedded within an individual and the extent of how, and to the extent how this belief might be harmful or it might lead to harmful behaviors. So there are four quadrants in this particular framework. So depending on which quadrant that particular belief or falsehood falls into, they um, suggest four different approaches, four strategic approaches. So, you know, if it's if it's the management of behavior, so the probably one of the spaces to be aware of, we need to be challenging the harmful behaviors first rather than the underlying beliefs. On the proactive promotion, we need to amplify a clear overarching narrative focused on the truth rather than engaging with those falsehoods. Uh, when you think about reactive response, and that's where we challenge the false stories and statements directly. So what we're talking about here is debunking. Um, and then you have the watch and wait quadrant. And this is you know, where there's no immediate communication action required to dispel a false belief, but we should continue to monitor the, the situation. And um, if you, if, I think if you as an individual find yourself in a situation where debunking is the appropriate strategy, um, and a lot of people think about, you know, it's either fact-checking or debunking that become the common strategies to, to tackle this particular space. Uh, it is best to follow best practice, uh, which has been developed by experts in the field. So the approach that we go with, for example, is, you know, fact lead with the truth, then point to the false information or the myth, explain the fallacy. So why is this false information incorrect? And then repeat that fact of the, of the truth. So... I think we've talked about pre-bunking. That's also another way to deal with it. But going back to the initial bit of that conversation we just had, uh, algorithms are created to proliferate uh, engaging content. So, you know, just by responding to something, we might be bringing to attention a lot of the false information to our network. So whilst it's important to think about the strategic approach to mis- and disinformation and whether you should respond, it's also important to think about the algorithmic and technological 
fallout mm-hmm. from it as well. I guess one of the one of the other issues with pre-bunking is that a lot of the stuff that that's being talked about right now is just utterly mundane, um, and preloading people with information is just you know it's not information that any normal person would want to absorb. So. To give you an example, we, you know, we had Lee Waters in here about 20 miles an hour. And then I started to look into the whole Welsh politics, which I wasn't really involved in before. And the Welsh Labour have got a policy where they're testing a universal basic income. So they're testing it amongst a very small group of a couple hundred people. And those people have got to be from a cross-section of society to then do a test. So within that cross-section of society, there are some asylum seekers within that within that group. There are also some shop workers, you know, some unemployed people, some students, I'm sure, that they have a cross-section of people in society. So the opposition in Wales have started to say that Wales have a policy of paying asylum seekers £1,600 a month, just, you know, like carte blanche, which obviously plays into people's deep-rooted stigma of, oh, you know, that's like they don't even have to work and they get this, this money or, or whatever. So I think trying to explain that policy about universal basic income to a person before it's actually a policy is just not going to go anywhere because no one cares um, it was a problem with the eu wasn't it quite trying true, to make people yeah. interested in the eu and the no sort of slow workings of um of that um it was quite difficult and then and then yeah someone uh, managed to make it exciting yeah boris quite. johnson <laughs> yeah so i think i think that <laughs> for the wrong reasons is, is you know super it's a challenge super challenging yeah yeah i guess it's all about how you communicate if you can manage to if someone can manage to spin something in a negative way mm. you'd you'd think that someone could manage to spin it in a positive way but that's why i think it's very important to think about disinformation before it becomes a crisis right and this is why the proactive part of of being disinformation aware i suppose especially as a government is so important because you know, I often think of disinformation as where, you know, in the 90s with cybersecurity, and I feel like, you know, we talk about disinformation through the lens of communications a lot, but I don't believe that it's a communications problem. I think communications will be a, a leader in deploying the solutions to protect audiences, organizations, et cetera, et cetera. But I do see the sitting in business organizational strategy, risk and compliance. I think this needs to be integrated at the very top to really think about whether, you know, just as you do a risk analysis, disinformation should form part of that risk analysis to predict whether the policy at hand is open to the proliferation of false information. And if so, how do you deal with it? So just like you would with crisis, just like you would with risk and compliance and cybersecurity, you know, planning those scenarios, being able to test those scenarios for effectiveness so you can deploy them at speed is really important. And it's interesting. This makes me think about um, something I I interviewed somebody about um, some of the backlash around low traffic neighbourhoods some time ago. And one of the things that they mentioned was um, in the cuts to councils, one thing that had been cut substantially was the people involved in consultations, basically helping people understand changes to the streets, why they were happening, what was happening and how it was going to affect people. And that communications piece, once that was gone, then there was a void into which that was one theory around around why things started becoming a problem. That this um, When consultations became online only as well during COVID uh, and then people kept them online only uh, Mm -hmm. as well. And and, and that, you know, that doesn't help the kind of explanation of the matter. Yeah. Um, When it does come to, to transport... Um, we've obviously talked quite generally, but when you know, I guess there's three topics at the moment which are quite interesting. ULES, 
20 mile an hour and zones and, and low traffic neighborhoods. What has your work learned on this? Do you have a point of view of those, those topics on transport in particular? I guess what the dangers are and also how effective potentially some of the misinformation has been or disinformation potentially? Yeah, we do operate in that space, of course. Um, I think it's important to remember that the LTN, ULES, 20 mile per hour policies are different policies each with their own sets of complexities. But more broadly, particularly when it comes to anything to do with cars, our mindset is that of, and I always mispronounce this, so I'm going to do a disclaimer if I mispronounce it, <laughs> motor normativity. You know, it's quite entrenched and difficult to change and then may um, amplify feelings of reactance and, and also loss aversion. So something that issues like LTNs or ULES uh, are vulnerable to, uh, rather than being seen as a, as a gain or a good thing. So these kinds of issues also quickly become politi- politicized and subject to, of course, as you say, mistis and malinformation. Um, issues like LTNs, ULES, et cetera, have been conflated as a government attack on autonomy. So we talked about agency before. Um, and personal freedom. So conspiracy theorists have exploited these vulnerabilities caused by the lockdown and the pandemic. So if you think about in times of anxiety, perceived threats to individual rights can drive people to embrace these theories, right? So this is what has happened coming out of the pandemic, and then this becomes central Mm. to our identities. Climate and public health measures are ripe for this type of targeting, and they have become entangled in larger ideological struggles concerning political and economic agendas, I definitely feel. And these issues can also then become amplified and exacerbated by more extreme actors. Yeah, and I think I, I, um, I was th- I've been thinking a fair bit about, I can't say it either, mo- mo- it's not just me. It's not just me. <laughs> it's not just you. It's a long, weird, it's a, a long, new weird, word. New yeah. word. That, was that coined by Dr. Ian, Ian Walker, Walker? I believe. He was our first ever guest. Yes, on the, it's a great, he was. Yeah. It's a great word. But they great are word. cars are particularly potent things, aren't they, in all sorts of ways. And I think that they, you know, they are the, almost the ultimate evolution of the, the cult of the individual. You know, the, the driver's seat is a position of extreme power and you know and um, they are designed to make you feel like a king or a queen you know they they carry you around they I do understand at a very deep subconscious level what they mean to people actually and I triggered that accidentally with an online debate about the unnecessary size of some vehicles recently and I was I was very struck with some of the emotional responses that I got in opposition to my my contention that cars don't need to be this big. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of people just said, and the, the, the argument didn't really go much mm. far beyond, shut up, it's got nothing to do with you. I mean, it was literally that. Mm. Wow. Who are you to tell me what I can drive? You people, know. People's in a chimp, in a chimp basically, it, yelling at you. Yeah, but well, it's not. But their, we should, freedom. But we should take this seriously. Yeah. This yeah. is an incredibly, yeah. you know, like, it struck me, this is a really serious and entrenched mm. problem in, if we if we are serious about redesigning our, our our travel environment you know people's relationship with the car it's not going to be something change overnight you know mm. there are there are a large swathe of the population it's impossible to put a percentage mm. on this who do not care at the moment who do not care that um their choice of how they get around might have an impact on others mm. they don't yeah. see that connection at all and because they don't want to see it yeah and this is something the car industry has been very clever at doing i don't know if you've read um naomi klein's 
first book, No Logo. And she talks about marketing and where it came from. There's a kind of origin story, which is basically um, car manufacturers sold the car as the modern day American horse, which mm. is a symbol of freedom mm. and mm. all of this and power and, uh, you know, it, Almost national, national identity yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. And very it's, deep. yeah, and it's been like that ever since, I guess. And, yeah. um, and that advertising, we're very susceptible to advertising and that advertising is constant. It's there, you go to the cinema, you know, it's online, it's on TV. They've got so much money to keep reinforcing this kind of notion of freedom yeah. and individuality. Uh, my, my trips to cinema are now ruined because when I go, <laughs> with my, go with my wife and we both <laughs> like, spot this stuff and, you know, you're watching the film, you look at each other and you're like... Yeah. God, this is a really bad car ad, or you know, oh, they paid for the placement in this, or you know, or, the people behind you are like, but to what extent? Going back to, I think, almost the beginnings of our discussion. To what extent are so there are there are bad faith actors at work here who who are quite consciously and actively trying to, uh, as you say, explode things for whatever reason financial gain or or, or, or or for whatever reason I don't I don't really understand it myself no. but, but um they can only do what they can do what they rely on is, is they're almost like the stack of kindling wood mm. in the uh, at the heart of the bonfire but without the dry logs ready to catch you know without that susceptibility in the general population they ain't going to get very far mm. is that a decent analogy I don't know I go back to what I said earlier, right, where I said that they are very good at understanding human behavior. And I don't think as a general population, we are very good at understanding our own behavior. And the fact that the majority of the decisions or the choices we make are automatic, they're not necessarily reflective. What do I mean by that? They are pre-wired, hardwired ways of, of thinking. And, and, you know, we as a species, we engage a lot of mental shortcuts to make our decisions. When you wake up in the morning, you don't really make a pros and cons list of whether you're going to brush your teeth or even what route you're going to take to go to work, right? I mean, who's got the time? So when we are living in this complex world with you know hundreds of decisions every single day to make, we have adopted these mental shortcuts or heuristics to, to make these decisions for us over time. And that's how our species has evolved. And the problem with these heuristics, which are very good, and you know, let's not write them off, they've been developed for a reason, is that they result in biases and cognitive biases. And these are the, this is the discipline of a part, well, it's not the whole discipline of behavioral science, but a big part of behavioral science looks at heuristics and judgment, looks at how we make decisions through the lens of cognitive psychology. And what, what that means is those biases can lead to predictable errors. And these disinformation actors are good at understanding that. So they create content that is is meant to, you know, engage those sort of heuristics and, and uh, start uh, activating the biases. Now, biases can be activated for good or it could be activated for bad. You could, you know, push someone further down a confirmation bias or you could you push, take them away from it. And so, you know, what they're doing is they are systematically understanding how human beings look at content, how they interpret content, how that content that really drills into our automatic brain, how that engages our, our, our biases on our deep-seated beliefs and values and identity. And then they trust that that methodology will lead to the proliferation of their information further on. And, and you know, you, you've had those two catalyst moments of the pandemic, well, three catalyst moments of social media, the pandemic and AI. And all of that's further triggering this into this massive, and where we are now, it's a race. It's a race for some of the key, policies that we need to 
deploy, whether that's, you know, policies in climate or policies in health that have these disinformation actors who have every single intent of derailing. And how do we how do we get there first? How do we ensure that the policies are deployed and not diluted? And certainly in 20 miles per hour. Right. So I don't know if you know this, but we we, we are running the campaign for uh, 20 miles per hour. Oh, so it's, it's a policy that we know well. We work with the deputy minister very closely. Uh, and we we are on the ground, as they say, and seeing all of this through the lens in in Wales. And it's really important to to think about how you, when it's important policies like 20 miles an hour, it's the Senate's most ambitious, most complex policy since it's been in existence. How do you ensure that the policy is not diluted? And that's been one of the biggest challenges we've dealt with in the in the last year that we worked on this. Is how do we ensure the policy can be retained as closely as much as much as possible? in the truest form to have the biggest impact into the population in Wales. Well, it doesn't help if the Prime Minister calls it un-British. It's been weaponized, (laughs) hasn't it? Slightly incidentally, I just rode past a 20 mile an hour speed limit sign that had just literally overnight been knocked down by a car. And that's at the end of my streets. And I'll put that straight at Rishi Sunak's door. Mm. You don't have to comment on that. Uh, But what I would comment on is to say that whilst all of this, you know, obviously with the Tory party conference, and we've seen a lot of narratives and policies coming out of the conference. um, And one of the things I saw during the rounds on Twitter was, I think it was an FT graph that demonstrated that compared to our peers, the UK is the least invested in active and and sustainable transport. So if we are a car heavy nation, there's a reason for it. And we need to think about the infrastructure and the system that we exist in to make it more accessible to not choose the car to travel. Yeah. Just, just I guess, coming towards the end of our, of our time, but one of the things I just wanted to sort of finish on and, and ask, and it kind of maybe poetically gives us something positive to look forward to the future. But I guess the secret, you know, the, the, the secret weapon for people implementing these policies, you know, the thing that, that can overcome this is that, actually when they happen people see for themselves that the world does not implode so you know let's take 20 mile an hour zones but you know what no one is going to be talking about that in a year or two's time they're just not we we know that you know we know anything like the smoking ban or wheelie bins or sewers all the things that were kind of scary and we seat did belts. seat belts all the <laughs> things just don't become a th- drink driving i was watching a drink driving mm. archive film mm. the other day when people were just totally losing their minds on it it was very contentious at um, the time yeah absolutely amazing to so think it's time now. the greatest healer with this in terms of of you know getting the policy out there showing people that actually it works and and then that kind of makes your job and other people's jobs more easy because, you know, what they see is in front of them. I think absolutely. So change is hard, right? Change is always hard. Change is hard for all of us. The people in the team who are deploying this, not just in my business, but if, even in Welsh government and in Welsh labour who all have cars and, you know, all are having to drive slower. So we, we understand that change is hard. And certainly the deputy minister has been very clear in terms of recognizing the change you know before the vote the deputy minister said he understood that lots of people are angry and frustrated that we are listening but time as as you rightly said all difficult policy challenges which have then had an associated behavior change population level behavior change challenge it's always hard this is expected we expect there to be resistance we expect people to have concerns we expect people to find it difficult to take on a new behavior. As human beings, we just don't like change. We like the status quo. We like it how it is. And then, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, the moments of 
where do we make these decisions, right? So you're thinking about those five minutes lost in transit. Fair enough. And that's a valid concern. But if those five minutes lost can save the life of a child who might have previously been killed, right? So what is the trade-off? Is that worth it? So I think it's important to have a policy that is centered on human behavior that takes into consideration how the humans on the ground will, will react to that policy uh, that considers the system that they operate in. So systems thinking is really important. I think the communications being, again, focused on the actual humans that we're interacting with, not just a creative idea or an activation idea or you know some sort of stunt, but really knowing that we're communicating with real humans, with real concerns, real problems, and creating communications and content that, that takes that into account and, and responds in that. And the third thing is is a positive frame. I think you know we need to. There, there was a lot of debate whether the campaign that we we are running on the ground should you know have a positive or a negative. Should we should we instill fear, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. And we know that the research tells us that to get people to change their behaviors, they need to feel positive about it. They need to see the benefits of it. They need to see how it impacts them and their communities in the longer term. So as you know, in Wales, we have the Future Generations Act. Everything that the Welsh government does is anchor to making sure that the future generations is protected. And so it's really important, even through that lens, to think about how is this policy going to affect us in the future, affect your kids, affect your kids' kids, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So time is a good, is, is a friend to any tough, complex behavior change uh, challenge, but as is the design of it and the implementation on the ground, making sure that it's created to really engage with audiences in a meaningful way, listen to them, take their feedback on board. And um, it's about real world change, not just, you know, big numbers to be presented back to the client. And if this kind of conspiracy theories or falsehoods speak to us as social beings and speak to something quite deep seated in us about needing to belong, being part of a tribe, I guess as individuals, we also have, and I know I've spoken to you about this before for, um, for a column that I write and you said something quite interesting about the power that we have as members of communities to people we know in terms of helping to stop misinformation and disinformation before it becomes deep-seated and perhaps you could just talk about that before we yeah I think it's really I think we all owe it to ourselves uh, our communities and society to ensure that the right information is presented and uh, you know I'm I'm very clear that Lynn, I think Laura said this to you last time we spoke, is you know, I, I appreciate the way Lynn operates is through the lens of either behavioral science or misdisinformation, both of which can be weaponized in and, and, and used to manipulate population. So I'm very cognizant that we operate in that space, but it is a science and science can be used to do good or bad. So we are very clear that the work we do is for positive societal benefits. So as individuals, we have a duty to ourselves and to each other to ensure that the right information is presented back to people around us, those people who might be influenced by us. It's up to them to make the choice. And that's it, right? So agency is really important. All the campaigns we run, not sitting in someone's car and forcing them to reduce their speed limit. You know, when we did vaccinations, I didn't force someone to walk into a vaccine clinic and get a jab. I just hope that they get the right information and they make the right choices for themselves. And I think we, we can all do that by questioning you know you know questioning our friends our families if they if they are spreading false information um, sitting them and, and really you know not coming at it from a place of attack but really having a positive meaningful dialogue to understand why they feel that that information is true 
or why they feel the need to share the information. And, and as I said, fact-checking is not often the right approach. But I think the more people can hear within their networks cues that can start giving them that sort of bridge into the other camp, the more they might hold on to that and try and move into that space. There'll be a group of people who will be set in their ways and we won't be able to shift them. And, you know, that's fact. But there will be a lot of people who are hesitant, who will go where they feel comfortable, where they feel they belong, where they feel there's a tribe, where it feels psychologically safe. So how do we how do we bring them into um, where truth and, and facts matter and is, is real um, and, and, and making sure that then they make a choice that is right for them? Mm. Brilliant. Brilliant. And apply the same strictures and scrutinies to ourselves occasionally yes. as well, because Absolutely. we're all vulnerable to yeah. the same. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Question our own assumptions yeah. and yeah. what we're reading and whether we're just agreeing yeah. with it because it aligns with what we already believe. Absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. It really is. Thank you for having much. me. This was a, a very quick hour. I really enjoyed myself. Well, I've really enjoyed those last couple of episodes yeah. about stuff that yeah. I think about a lot and don't understand. Mm. And it's pretty scary, isn't it? It is it's really scary. scary. I think um, it seems like it's it's kind of one step ahead. It's like a lot of these things. It's like sort of different crimes criminals are always sort of one step, one step ahead, ahead of yeah. the of the people trying to catch them and it seems that way with disinformation and sometimes we're talking about sort of state actors and i start to feel like am i am i just this feels like a conspiracy theory in itself like who yeah. you know you're kind well, of wondering like where is this coming from and i think mm, i guess like, i, I can tell you about know. my visit to china hmm. But I won't. I'll save that for oh. another episode. <laughs> but I mean, because I, I don't know. I mean, I had some experiences in China in 2015 that made me, for the first time, alive to the notion that potentially China is a state actor and is mm. kind of working very hard mm. at disrupting systems. But yes. then again, that itself might be a tinfoil conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I there, don't know. There was two two things that really stuck out for me on on that. One was you know around the policies and making sure that the policies kind of go through and are true to themselves rather than being continually mm. watered down yeah. to the point where they, they appease and, and yeah. support nobody. I've got a good example on that, which I think feeds into this. And the second one is is the power that we have as individuals to, exactly. you know, talk to our fam- family, friends, etc. Yeah, um, And actually, to challenge WhatsApp yeah, groups as well, I guess, you know, exactly. our sort of slightly wider circles because... Yeah, all sorts of stuff goes around those as well. Yeah, obviously. did some yeah. work with um, with Dr. Ian Walker, who we mentioned uh, in the interview, on this thing called pluralistic ignorance, and basically it's the notion that cycling and walking is quite popular, but because people think that it's unpopular, they don't share their opinions with anybody else. So they might share, they might think, "Oh, yeah, I quite like cycle lanes outside my house." And you go, well, what would you, what do you think your friends would think? And they go, oh, they'd probably be less just keep, keen just than keep me. It to myself, yeah. What do you think your family think? Oh, they wouldn't be keen. Mm. And if you ask everyone individually, they're all quite keen, but it never gets through. So I think, I think the, the, you know, actually, just if you're supportive of this stuff, saying so is is super important. And then on the policy side, I think that I couldn't help but think when I was listening to the kind of stuff is there was two things. One is about preempting in a policy what could be misconstrued and what could be used and, and actually having a strategy to that and then also water- pre-bunking yeah pre-bunking, pre-bunking. Yeah. pre-bunking. and then yeah. also the watering down of Good policies and I think mm. um, I'm going to I mean it's a little bit undiplomatic of me but I think what's happened in Oxford is really close to that because what's happened in if, Oxford well you, you would have that's where the kind of 15 minute city oh, thing of course, yes. took hold mm. yeah. but what they did is um, they tried to appease people so so 
I spoke to a government advisor on this and, and, and he was sort of of the notion of like, well, if they just did bus gates, everyone knows what bus gates are and how they work. So like no one would have probably had a problem with that. But the fact that they then had some complaints and, and said, oh, what we can do is allow you to have 100 passes a year fed right into this notion of freedom. So when and, I said, and, and when, I say, when I asked Jeremy about do these things have to have a kernel of truth, mm. that's, why, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah. Because that, le- that leads inexorably to Mark Harper standing at the Conservative Party conference so, and so, saying, so we're not going to stop people The, the councils will tell you when you can go to the shop. Exactly. And that's where it comes from. Yeah, isn't it? And, yeah. It's beca- and really, I, I believe, having worked in local government, you know, I, I suspect it's because some people didn't like the policy or some politicians weren't comfortable with the policy. And rather than go through it and bite the bullet, they, mm. they you know, inverted commas, watered it down. And it reduces the effectiveness of the policy. Yeah. And so... And gives more ammunition to undermines the undermines the case. Yeah, exactly. For, next, for, the other, for the next ones. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's all very real, this stuff, which is... Mm. Um, but isn't it funny that things have changed so much in the last six or seven years in terms of new words, new phrases are coming to our vocabulary, like fake news and alternative facts. Motor normativity as well. Motor, motor normativity. But the, fake, the concept of fake news is quite new, isn't it? Like, mm. you know, I, and... Donald but, Trump coined but, it, I yeah, believe. exactly. It was a mm. Trumpism. He may not have invented it, but he, he, he made it popular. Mm. Mm. And, and so we all think we wander around with this heightened awareness, which to some extent we do, that not everything we read and see should be trusted. Mm. And yet we seem to be simultaneously more susceptible <laughs> to this thing that we've only just discovered mm. than we were before we even knew it existed. If because you see what I mean. we're it's using... Very, it's very interesting. Yeah. Kind of like, but it does give me some perhaps crumb of optimism that by and large we do now understand in a way that we didn't mm. maybe 10 years ago 15 years ago that a lot of what we read is is highly suspect mm. and that i think we were 20 years ago a lot more trusting mm. you know if it's in the paper it's probably true yeah, yeah. because we, we're relying on this thing that um Shione was talking about this sort of automatic brain or the unthinking brain that you know, that's served us very well through history. We don't have to make every decision as it comes. Yeah. A lot of them are sort of built yeah. in. Yeah. And so we'll just see, we'll just see a few keywords and think, oh, okay, this is this is going to be true because this is something I already believe. And but that's that's the kind of thing that we're having to perhaps challenge, which is work actually, isn't it? It's mental work and it's it's something we're not really used to doing because we have grown up most of us in an era where you can trust certain figures in public and you can trust certain information and there isn't this proliferation of information which there is now with the internet and with ai and yeah and certain people trusting yeah certain people yeah yeah well there we go another yeah. another mind-blowing and uh well informing but slightly like, scary yeah, yeah. Scary and, i think yeah. i think we need to get some more i think we need to get some very granular podcasts next like guests literally talking about curb height yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, go back to our beginnings, go back yeah. to basics. I think that was so. one of the we early should, discussions yeah, we had, absolutely. wasn't it? No one I'm can sure. argue with curb hike, can they? Yeah. Well, In either reason, it is. I'm sure we can generate a controversy. <laughs> <laughs> or we could just disseminate a load of false information about it and put mm. it out there. Yeah. See what comes of it. Um, let's do that. Uh, in the meantime, you've been listening to Streets Ahead. Our editor has been Claire Mansell. Thank you, Claire. Let us know what you think at Pod Streets Ahead. And as I say always, and you probably never do it, but do it this time. Rate us and review us and share the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy it, including any potential sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> if there are any curb manufacturers out there, yeah. we're, we're waiting to hear or, or, yeah. or, or anybody maybe else. The, the Chinese state. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I've been Ned Bolting. I've been Adam Tranter. I've been Laura Laker. And goodbye. Bye.
And we've been sponsored by Curbomatic. Are you struggling between the level difference between the road and the pavement? You might need curbs. <laughs> 